Hi, Pastor Chad Tucker here from Doxa Church in Burlington, North Carolina. To learn more about our new ministry and to find out about how you can partner with us, visit us online at doxaburlington.com. That's D-O-X-A burlington.com. We hope you enjoy the message. Let's pray as we always do before we go to God's Word. Our Father, what we say here today makes no difference at all. It might be encouragement, encouraging and edifying. But Father, what you say in this place today makes all the difference. Father, we believe that you speak to your children through your word. And Father, I pray that as we study your word together today, that Father, that you would be pleased to speak to our hearts. That you'd be pleased to take the information that we discuss. That we would leave here with hearts and wills to apply the truths in order that our lives can be transformed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. Father, we pray and know and believe that your word goes forth with purpose and it never returns void. And so we trust that you'll accomplish that purpose in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, God's people said, Amen. Amen. So we're studying the book of Revelation, and we are studying kind of uh, not even verse by verse, but kind of phrase by phrase. And we've been stuck on Revelation chapter 3, um, verse 10, for a while now. In fact, this is our third week on that particular verse. Uh, not just reading it over and over and over and over again, though we could. It is God's Word and certainly satisfying. But what we are doing as we are walking through these letters to the church of the book of Revelation, uh, we are spending a significant amount of time on the letter to the church at Philadelphia. Uh, This would be the last, if you will, uh, Christ-honoring, second-coming-focused church that we will study. As you'll see when we get to the church at Laodicea, not so much, not so much. And so we are uh, studying this letter, and we've spent many weeks uh, just kind of wringing this letter out. And we've studied about David's covenant, and uh, we've studied about God opening and closing doors. Uh, we have uh, studied uh, um, some history and background of these cities and all uh, as well. And we come to Revelation chapter 3, and so we can kind of keep the verse in context. And we're going to pick up in verse 7. I'm going to read down, read this letter so we can kind of put the whole letter together. But remember, we're focusing on verse 10. Focusing on verse 10. So listen, if you would, to the Word of God. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. The Bible says, Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Now thus says the Holy One, the true one, and the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, or look, Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet. They will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, 
I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. So we are focusing on verse 10. And we're kind of doing a mini-series, if you will, that I've sort of entitled, Because You Have Kept, I Will Keep. Because You Have Kept, I Will Keep. And we've noted that what He's keeping uh, whoever these people are from is He's keeping them from this testing. And we've talked about this testing before. This testing would be the tribulation period from Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 18. It's a testing that is about to come on the whole world. The whole world. And so we said if God's going to keep anyone out of this worldwide hour of testing, and hours not just 60 minutes, but a period, we're going to talk about that today, then I want to know who's going to be in there and who is not going to be there. And so we spend ample time the last couple of weeks studying what God's Word has to say. And, and we have already seen that the, the unsaved Jews, unbelieving Jews that have rejected Christ the Messiah, uh, we are expecting them, expecting to see them as we get to Revelation 6 through 18, uh, inside the tribulation. And we've already seen that two-thirds will be cut off, but one-third will be brought through the fire and purged and brought into the body of Christ. Now, we want to be well aware that there are Jews that are saved now and who are in the body of Christ. They didn't come through the Jewish religion and they didn't come through rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. They came in the same way that you and I came in, repented of our sins, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, His finished work on the cross, that He came to live the life that we could not live. He died the cruel death in the cross in our place that we should have died. And therefore, He bore God's wrath in our place and our stead in order that we would never have to pay for the penalty of our sins. But we would be forgiven and we would be brought in and we would be sealed until the day of redemption. So if you know not Orthodox Jews, but Messianic Jews, they are part of the body of Christ and came in just like, just like you and I have. But the Orthodox Jews that have rejected Christ, we will expect to see as we've studied in the past, uh, in this period, this hour of testing that's going to come upon the whole world. And then we also looked at the Gentiles and we looked at this phrase, this phrase to test those who live on the earth. And we've seen this phrase over and over and over again, 11 times in the book of Revelation. And every time in that context, it's always Gentiles who have not believed the gospel. In other words, it's unbelieving Gentiles who are those who, who are specifically mentioned in this passage of Scripture as those who dwell or live on the earth. And, and we followed that trail throughout the book of Revelation where God's Word clearly defines that these are unbelieving Gentiles. And unbelieving Gentiles, just like unbelieving Jews, will die, be separated from Christ forever, and spend eternity uh, in hell separated from God because they are not saved. They are not saved. And yet every one of us who are Gentiles, who are part of the body of Christ, it's not because of any works that we have done, 
but it's by His grace and by His mercy. As He called, as we just sung it, He opened our ears to hear His call and to come. And with that, we rejoice and are glad. So if the unbelieving Jews will not be in this hour of testing, and if the unbelieving Gentiles will, excuse me, the unbelieving Jews will be in the hour of testing, and the unbelieving Gentiles will be in the hour of testing, and there are only two groups of people on the face of the earth, the Jews and the Gentiles, who will not be in there. And the truth is, be people both from the Jews and Gentiles who know Christ as their personal Savior, who will not be found there. And that's what I hope to convince you of today. And I want to show this to you biblically as we look uh, at the Scriptures uh, today. So a couple of things that we have to do, first of all, is we've got to look at this phrase, this phrase found in verse 10, that says, because you have kept my command to endure. Because you have kept my command to endure. In other words, Christ says this, this hour of testing is coming on the whole world, but there are people whose obedience whose obedience and whose endurance, uh, whose following Christ will allow them or cause them to be kept out of this tribulation. And some might say, well, does that seem fair? Um, I mean, after all, is there anybody here who has ultimately kept? I mean, is God just dangling something that nobody could do? Because you, look at what it says, verse 10, because you have kept my command to endure. What does that mean? Kept it one time? Kept it a specific time? Kept it in a lifetime? I didn't even keep it this week. I mean, if I'm just, if I'm just being honest, so, so is he just dangling this thing out there that says, oh, if you're obedient and live perfectly, you're going to do that? No, 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 not at all. Not at all. What he's saying is, is, is in a nutshell though, is, is that, that tribulation is coming. God's wrath is going to be poured out. God's wrath is, is going to be poured out because of the sins of the whole world. The difference is, is those who he's talking about in verse 10 are not those who have endured because of their own doing. They are those upon whom God wrath, God's wrath, instead of being poured out on them, was poured out on Jesus on the cross, and we have received that gift of salvation. And therefore, when God sees us, He sees us through the shed blood of Christ. And therefore, just as Christ identified with us in our sin, He imputed to us His righteousness, so that when God sees us, He sees us, he sees us as the righteousness of Christ. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's how God sees us. But the question would become, has God ever withheld judgment because of faithfulness and obedience to people? Well, I don't know that He has, but I know that He was willing for example, if you were to look with me over in Genesis chapter 18, it reminds you of this story. If I stir us up by way of remembrance. Genesis chapter 18, this is in the story of Abraham. And Abraham is already separated from, from Lot. And we come to 
Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. And the Bible says this, The men got up from there and looked out over Sodom. But who are these men? Go to chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham the, at the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He looked up and he saw three men standing near him. And when he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them, bowed to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. So these are three unique men, individuals. In fact, we're going to see down in verse 13 that one is a pre-incarnate uh, uh, Christ. He is the Lord Himself who is here in one of these. Notice verse 13. Well, let's pick up in verse, verse 11. Abraham and Sarah were old and, and then verse 13. But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Down in verse 16, the men got up from there and looked out over Sodom. And Abraham was walking to see them off. Now notice verse 17. Then the Lord said, you see that? So who are the three men? Of the three men, one of them is the Lord. Is the Lord. The Lord said, Should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abram what He promised him. And the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. The men turned from there and went towards Sodom. While Abraham remained standing before the Lord, verse 22 says, Abraham stepped forward and said, Will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You cannot possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole, whole earth do what is just? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. You're familiar with the story. He goes from 50 to 45. He goes from 45, he goes down to 20, verse, verse 31. Since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. And he replied, I will not destroy it on account of 20. And then he said, let my Lord not be angry and I will speak one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed and Abraham returned to his place. So what do we see in this passage of Scripture? In Genesis 18, what we see is, is the wrath of God is coming and ultimately going to destroy and did Sodom and Gomorrah. But God was willing for the sake of the righteous to withhold his wrath and to withhold his judgment. 
Perhaps the reason that Abraham whittled all the way down to ten is because Lot and his family would perhaps equal ten and, and they would be spared because of, of Abraham's interceding, if you will, on their uh, behalf. So what we see is God declaring that judgment is coming, but we see because of the righteousness that God was willing to do something because of those who were obedient uh, in it. Unfortunately, you know the story and what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. Ultimately, there were not ten righteous and and it was destroyed. Even though Lot and his family were able to make their way out, you know, of course, what what happened uh, there. In Revelation chapter 3, it's similar in principle. It's Christ is the one who's saying, because you have kept my command to endure, I will do something differently with those who, who, uh, are obedient, who are obedient. And so, who are those who are obedient? The only ones who can be obedient are those who know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Even as we've said many times in the past, that even those who do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, even the good that they do will ultimately be held against them because they do it um, for their own glory instead of the glory of God. Instead of the glory of God. So what we see here is we see that God can do something different with His wrath that's going to be poured out because of the obedience of His people. And He certainly makes them uh, obedient, gives them the power and the strength and the opportunity and the righteousness to even be found faithful. Here's what it says in Revelation 3.10, Because you kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I want to talk about this specific time frame and period that we see here. You'll notice that it is an hour of testing. An hour of testing. Now we look at this word hour, it's interesting because you and I, when we think of an hour, oftentimes we think of 60 minutes. And there are times in the Bible, though they didn't have watches or Apple watches or things along those lines, that an hour, in fact, does mean a single, approximately 60-minute hour. In fact, you remember when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and He had His disciples and He said, stay here and pray while I go a little bit further. And He went a little bit further and cried out to God. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 40, that when He came back, He found them sleeping. And He says, what? Could you not watch and pray for one hour? Now, before we you know, fold our arms and wag our head and cluck our tongue at them, I would simply ask you, when is the last time you prayed for an hour without falling asleep? Okay. Uh, I pray all through the night. Five minutes before I fall asleep and five minutes after I wake up. Alright? So, uh, what happens is the, uh, uh, you, 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 so in the Bible, the hour is, in some cases, 60 minutes. But in other cases, it's longer than a 60 minute period of time. It's a a specified, distinct time frame that the Lord is going to move. 
And so to see this and see how this relates to the testing, I want us to look in John's Gospel. We're going to look in John chapter 2. What we do here is we let the Bible interpret itself. And in letting the Bible interpret itself, we look for examples and illustrations and principles that are found in the Scripture to bring clarity and meaning to what we're looking at. You remember this in John chapter 2 is the first miracle uh, that Jesus performed. And you remember that they were at a wedding, a wedding at Cana. And there was uh, a wedding party and the wine had ran out, remember? The wine had ran out. And that would have been a, a huge embarrassment to the wedding party and the families. And so people were, were panicking. And so we see in John chapter 2, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cain of Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there. Verse 2 says, Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Now, Jesus was not being condescending in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't, didn't even, it didn't even come across even the way that I said it. The way I said it sounded kind of condescending. I know if I call my mama woman, I'm probably going to get in trouble. If I call my wife woman with that tone of voice. But this is Jesus. And it's not there. This is the context of the culture. We could look at various examples there as well. He's basically saying, what does this have to do with you and me? Hey, I'm just a guest at the wedding party. This is there. And notice what Jesus said. Now look at what Jesus said. Verse 4. My hour has not yet come. Now, let's be clear what Jesus didn't mean here. He didn't mean, well, I'm about to go on the clock and punch the clock. And once I go on the time clock and punch that, then I'm on the clock and for an hour and I can do what you do then. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he's saying my hour, his public ministry and all, as we're going to see in a minute, leading to his death. That that specified, distinct period of time hasn't begun Yet, and he refers to that specified distinct, distinct period of time as an hour or a period or a season. So you see, it's more than just uh, 60 minutes. So if you read Revelation 3.10 and you say the hour, oh, that's easy. Anybody can do anything for 60 minutes. No, no, it's not that kind of hour. It's, it's more of a, of a season. We're going to get more insight when we get to chapter 12. Look in... Uh, chapter 12 of John. John chapter 12, we see the same kind of context there in connotation. But in this case, Jesus gives us more of an idea of what was, of, of what this hour that he was talking about was going to uh, entail. So in John chapter 12, verse 20, there were some Greeks who were among those who went up to worship at the festival. And this was, according to chapter 12, verse 1, six days before Passover. So this is right at the end of Jesus' ministry on the earth. Some Greeks were among those who were at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir... 
We want to see Jesus. How about that? Wouldn't it be great if people just come up to you today and say that? Ma'am, we want to see Jesus. And you're like, okay, I can show you to Him. When I was at Arlington Baptist Church on our pulpit, we had a, a placard that was ingrained, and it was right there on the uh, or, or uh, in, uh, engraved, and it was right there on the pulpit. So as we looked at your Bible and looked across the pulpit, and you saw all the people looking at you, it was as if the people were saying, "Sir, we would see Jesus," and uh, reminding us that people come uh, not to hear the preacher, but to hear God's word and, and to see Jesus. So they come and they say, Sir, we would see Jesus. And Philip and Andrew, they went, Philip went and told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and they got a little more than what they bargained for. They were just going to go and say, Jesus, there's some Greeks that want to see you. But look at Jesus' response. Jesus replied to them, Now look at this. In John 2, the hour had not yet come. Now here in this one, Jesus says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Could you imagine... Philip and Andrew, they're going, it's just the Greeks. They, they want to see you. <laughs> it's just the Greeks. They believed up until this time that Jesus was going to always be available and he was going to reign and rule and usher in his kingdom. And they would ask him, when are you going to come into your kingdom? And he would take them as he would do things and he would meet with them on the Mount of Olives and they'd be showing him all the temple and, and and he would say, this temple is going to be destroyed in three days and rebuilt. Jesus began to teach his disciples that he didn't come in his first advent to reign. In that hour, in that specified, distinct time, all that God was going to do and, do, and, and, and would, would be accomplished. And in this hour, it would be accomplished through everything related to the arrest, the trials, the mockings, the scourgings, the beating, the crucifixion of Jesus. All of that would be the part of the ordained hour at this specific time. And so he's talking to them and he's telling them these things. He's getting into their mind that he is not always going to be with them. He's trying to help them to understand. In fact, if you go to John chapter 13, verse 1, before the Passover festival, Jesus, look at this, knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. So in John chapter 2, his hour had not yet come. By the time we get here, his hour had come. And all of the things that would be wrapped up in this hour related to Jesus would take place. So as you see clearly, 
This hour is a specific, distinct, specified time ordained for the purposes of God to accomplish His task and accomplish His purpose. And this hour here was not 60 minutes. This hour here was a season, a specified amount of time that Christ would accomplish redemption on our behalf, on our behalf. And so so when we come now then back to the book of Revelation, what we see in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, he says, Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. From the hour of testing. Go back to John 12. One other verse I I wanted to point out. Notice here in Revelation, as you're finding your way back in John, notice in Revelation, I want you to see the structure of the phrase. Jesus says this. He says that... um, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. There are some who believe that Jesus is going to keep us through the hour of testing. In other words, that that when the tribulation comes on the whole world, that we who are believers will be enduring and going through that season of time, but that God will protect us, or if we're alive there, that God will protect us and go with us that God will grant us grace and mercy to endure uh, through the end. Um, and, and I want to show you, and I think and I know a lot of good Bible-believing people who, who believe that, who believe that. Um, and I can see their position, I can see their point, but when I come back and I study like the wording of the phrases and the things here, I struggle to see how that could be said about the tribulation and the church, but particularly in the tribulation. For Jesus says here in Revelation 3.10, He says, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. So I want to look at what does that mean to keep you from, keep you from the hour of testing. So back in John chapter 12, Jesus continues to talk about uh, his life. He continues to predict his his crucifixion. Uh, we see in the same passage of Scripture, verse 25, Jesus goes on and says, The one who loves his life will lose. The one who hates his life in this world will keep it. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, my servant will also be if anyone serves me. Now look in verse 27. Look in verse 27. So we've already seen in chapter 13 that Jesus knew his hour had come. John 12, 27, Jesus says this, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, now look at this. Jesus says, my soul is troubled. He knew all that was before him. Nothing caught him by surprise. Jesus wasn't wondering what was going to happen next. Remember, he's 100% God and he's 100% man. So he set aside 
his attributes of God to take on the attributes of man, still had access to, to them, he could still raise the dead, he could still forgive sins and do all those things, and yet he added the attributes of man. So he had to sleep, and he had to eat, and he had to be raised. All sinless, perfect sinless in every way, shape, and form. So he comes to this and he's fully aware of what's about to happen. He knew that his hour was at hand. And he said, what should I say? Father, save or keep me from this hour? Thankfully, God did not do that. But I just want to look at this phrase. What did Jesus say? Save me from this hour. Well, that word from is a preposition, and the preposition is the word ek, ek, or to be pronounced ex. Uh, in fact, it means out of, out of, or from, out of. Uh, for example, uh, you familiar with the second book of the Bible, Exodus? Okay. Uh, and that's a, a Greek name, even though it's an Old Testament book. It's a Greek name, and the word is ek, sometimes with a K, sometimes with an X, hodos. Hodos. Hodos means road. So you think about the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is the way or the road out of Egypt, right? Okay. The reason it's not ex hodos is because in the Greek language, they didn't have an H sound at the starting of a word. They had a breathing mark. They had a breathing mark. But in the middle of the word, they, they could have that. So Exodus is, is ex hodos put together. Exodus, it is the road out or the way out of. Uh, this week I had an echocardiogram. And so anytime you see ek, in, in medical terms even, it typically means out of, out of the heart. Or we want to see what's, what's going on there. We want to get a report. So ek means, means out of. Now there are times that, that the word ace is used and ace is into or through, which would be E-I-S. Ace, into. So if, if, if here, if Jesus meant, and what should I pray? Father, save me through this hour. He would have used ace, E-I-S, transliterated. But he didn't. He used ek, out of. So if Jesus says, what, what would I pray? I, I mean, I, this is the purpose for which I came. But if I was not going to accomplish the purpose for which I would came, for which I came, then he would pray, Father, Save me from this hour. Does, does that make sense? Not, not, not protect me through. So it's clear here in John chapter 12 that when Jesus is saying, if I were going to pray that, then what I would pray is, is that God would, would be with me through this. But that's not what his prayer would have been. His prayer would have been, Father, if there was any other way possible, take me ek out of this. Uh, thankfully, it was not possible. And thankfully, Jesus went through and thankfully, He purchased our pardon and brought us salvation through that process. 
So notice here in this, same words, same Jesus saying, Father, from this hour means out of. Remove me from this if it would be possible, as he would have prayed in the garden. In the garden accounts uh, of Gethsemane, which are found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not found in John, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he would say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be, be done. So with that look there at from this hour, meaning out of, away from this hour. Now we go back to Revelation chapter 3, and in Revelation chapter 3, what we simply see, same construction, same words, same meaning. Notice what it says. I will also keep or save you, keep you, now look at this, from the hour. And what does from the hour mean? Out of. Out of this hour of testing. Out of this hour of testing. Now, now some will look at this and they would say, so is this one of those rapture verses where we're going to be caught up? There's no mention of the rapture in this verse at all. There's no mention. So this is not a rapture passage in terms of a passage that's telling us about the calling up or the calling away of saints. There are other verses. John chapter 14, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Uh, John chapter 14, 1 through 3. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 50 and 51 would all be verses that would remind us about those things. So this would not be necessarily a rapture verse because it doesn't mention the rapture or the calling up or anything in there. But this would be the effects or the way that God would... But the rapture would be the effect or the the way that God would keep us from the hour of testing. So, for example, what he says here is, is that I'm going to keep you. And how's he going to do that? Before that hour comes, Revelation 6 through 18, that that tribulation, the right, that's going to involve the unsaving Jews, the unsaving Gentiles. There will be people saved through the tribulation, both Jew and Gentiles. We're expecting to see that. There will be people who are martyred for their faith, and just because they're martyred, they don't go to heaven. They go to heaven because they know Jesus, whether they die naturally or they die a martyr's death. Being a martyr doesn't get you to heaven. Knowing Jesus gets you to heaven. So we are expected to see Jews come to faith in Christ in the tribulation. We are expected to see Gentiles come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. But before that comes, when the restraint removes and that tribulation comes from the whole world, we've talked about those things in the past. God is going to take his church up. And in so doing, that is his measure and his means from keeping us from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world. So why will you not be in that if you're still alive? Because you're not going to be here. Because He's going to come. So when we get to Revelation 6 through 18, listen, there's no mention of the church on earth. In fact, there's hardly mention of church at all. Revelation 6 through 18 primarily about the events, the unfolding of God's wrath on the earth. 
there are some events that, that, that take place from, from heaven as well that we're going to see mixed in when we get to chapter 13 and things along those lines. But ultimately, once you get past Revelation chapter 3, the church is no longer found on the earth. Does that mean there are no saved people? They do get saved, and ultimately they go there as well. So what about this period of time? What about this period of time? Well, I simply want to say this, that this period of time is going to be so um, impossible to endure without God's grace that Jesus says this, that if, if that period of testing was not shortened, that even the elect would not uh, w- w- would not be saved. It is going to be so utterly devastating, and we're going to see that in detail when we get to Revelation chapter six through uh, eighteen. So I just want to kind of leave you with a couple of thoughts here in conclusion of this verse. One is. Um, are you going through the hour of testing? Or do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? You see, folks, you don't get saved by osmosis. You don't get saved attending church. You don't get saved sleeping with the Bible under your pillow. You get saved because you see God in His holiness you recognize you and your sinfulness and you know that your sin separates you from God. And in so doing, you repent of your sin. God opens your eyes of faith. You see and repent. God saves you. And when God saves you, He makes you part of the family of God. He brings the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. He seals you until the day of redemption, until He calls you home or returns to get you. Outside of that, good intentions will not keep you from that hour of testing. Attending church will not keep you from that hour of testing. Living a good life will not. Just claiming that you are a person of faith is not going to keep you from that hour of testing. It's truly being born again. What the Bible calls regenerated. Regenerated. If you are, then just as it says here, and it says in all the other letters, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This truth is not only for the church at Philadelphia, but applies to all of those who be part of God's church. And only those who are part of God's church are those who have been born again, saved, redeemed, regenerated, whatever terminology that you want to use. If you are not saved, then the way to get saved is not just to announce that I'm a Christian. It doesn't work that way. I can call myself anything I want to call myself. Doesn't make it true. Attending church doesn't make it true. Right? Just because I stand in the garage doesn't make me a car. Any more than you sitting in a church gathering makes you a Christian. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. It comes through faith. It comes through believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes through confessing with our mouth our sin and confessing Christ as our Savior and our Lord. 
And then all the promises of the Bible are yes and amen through Jesus Christ, including this one, that He will keep you from the hour of testing. So the first point of application is, where is your place when this hour of testing comes? Inside? Into that? Or out of that? But there's a second application as well. I believe that the vast majority, if not all of you, who have given testimony of your faith and been baptized and uh, proclaimed Christ as Lord and Savior, and some we've even baptized here, how many of you believe that Christ is coming again soon? And how many of you truly believe that there will be people that if Christ returns and calls us home, will be left behind your loved ones, left behind your family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, 70% of the people in our city, based on demographics or more, would be going through this period of time. And how dare we, how dare we uh, keep our mouth shut? How dare we not share the gospel? How dare we not go beyond our personalities to overcome our introvertedness or to overcome our fearfulness that we might offend someone? I can promise you this, on that day, you're there and they are not. They're going to be more offended that you didn't tell them than they're going to be offended now that you did. So I believe that we ought to pray. And we ought to be actively witnessing and serving. And I see several of you have your bracelets on. It's a reminder of the gospel, of what the gospel is and to share. And God is continuing to use that. But as you are going, share the good news of the gospel with everyone. With everyone. Why would we not, knowing that this hour of testing is going to come upon the whole world. So whether you're here today and you know Christ or you don't know Christ, this message is for you. It's for all of us. And it's for all of us to come to the place where we simply say, all I have is Christ. All I have in Christ. Let's stand and pray together. Heavenly Father, we just are so thankful, Lord, that You love us, that You sent Jesus to die for us. Father, we pray that You would just work and move mightily in our lives, that You would embolden us, that, Father, lost people would repent and believe the Gospel, and saved people would have a a passion for lostness. And, Father, that we would see more souls saved, lives changed, and the kingdom of God advanced throughout our city, across our state, throughout our nation, around the world. In Jesus' name we pray.